This Week in Startups, the Power of Accelerators series is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people and every hire matters. Go to linkedin.com slash power and get a $50 credit towards your first job post. Embroker. The Embroker Startup Insurance Program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off of traditional insurance today at Embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code ANGEL10. And Notion. Looking to stay organized and in sync with your team? Try Notion. It brings all your notes, docs, projects, and more together in one place, all fully customizable. Get 50% off Notion's team plan when you sign up at notion.com slash twist. Hey, everybody. It's our Power of Accelerator series here on This Week in Startups. What's an accelerator? What's an incubator? You probably have that question as a founder or a prospective founder. Well, an accelerator or an incubator, and we refer to those terms interchangeably, uh, helps a founder get through a number of the issues which they're going to face becoming a startup founder. Now, what are those issues? In an incubator, those issues are building the product and getting it to market. Other issues around that time, company formation. Do you make an LLC, a C-Corp, an S-Corp? A lot of blocking and tackling stuff creating a stock option plan, finding a co-founder, designing the product, hiring the first couple of employees or team members. That is how accelerators used to work. They were called incubators. But incubators are not very important these days because people can build a product and they know how to start a company really easily. A lot of that stuff's been productized. Like AWS, it makes it really easy for somebody to set up servers Now, setting up a company, really easy. So most of what we see in the market better fall under the category of accelerators. So they're accelerating certain things. And that's why we call this series the power of accelerators. But you can think of those two things interchangeably. Accelerators help people who have a product that they've finished, or maybe they have an MVP, minimum viable product, or perhaps even a prototype, a very raw product that maybe people are testing And they help them raise money, help them get customers, help them grow their product. So that's where we're at in 2020. And we thought we would do this Power of Accelerators 10-part series and talk to the people who run accelerators and get their perspective on what they're doing at their accelerator to help founders grow. And out of nowhere came an accelerator called StartX, startx.com. And uh, you all know about it if you've been listening to This Week in Startups, because my guest today, Cameron Tiedelman, I got it correct, right, Cameron, your last name? Yeah, Tiedelman. Tiedelman. Ah, I do that every time. The E, it's <laughs> just drop the E. I, I went with the E that time. It's really the I, Tiedelman. Uh, and Cameron, you were on the podcast back in February of 2015 as a guest, episode 518. You were a panelist on episode 644 uh, back in May of 2016. And you were CEO of StartX until 2017. W- were you the founder of StartX? I'm tr- trying I to was, yes. Or I the, am. I you, was, I you am. Are, you still are the founder. Um, still and, the founder. Apparently that sticks. Yeah. And you're the chairman and head of admissions. Explain to everybody what StartX is today and why you founded it. And welcome back sure. to the pod. Welcome back to the pod. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Um, 
So StartX is a, first of all, it's a nonprofit and it's affiliated with Stanford University. Um, our goal is to take entrepreneurs that have a lot of potential or entrepreneurs that already have proven their potential and help them succeed faster. And we generally do that through helping them identify what their biggest pain points and problems are over the next, say, couple weeks to a couple months, and then helping them build relationships with people to unblock those issues. And so we're kind of a little bit different than a traditional accelerator where there are partners that kind of um, advise and coach founders. And we're more of, you can think of us like a university for entrepreneurs where we connect teachers or mentors and experts and people who would traditionally be partners at accelerators with our entrepreneurs to help train them. And it's a uh, we, nonprofit structure. That's correct. Yeah, nonprofit structure. Um, we uh, we've had around 750 companies in our community so far, and we have this 10 week onboarding program where we train them how to use all our resources. And it's kind of like an accelerator, the 10 weeks, but much more around kind of fundamental skill development and how to use our tools uh, to be part of the lifelong community. Got it. Um, and is there's no investment then uh, in this stage? Um, that's correct. And what stage is the company typically at? You heard my little preamble there about incubators yeah. or accelerators. Are people coming with a business plan and an idea looking for a co-founder? Are they coming with a prototype? Or are they coming with their first three, four, five customers and five, 10K a month in revenue? Yeah. So we started out with very early stage. And as happens with any company, you kind of go up market. So now we actually have a bunch of different tracks. So we have a track for first-time founders that are, let's say, a couple of people, pre-product market fit. We have a track for Series A stage founders, so post-product market fit, and a track for companies that are 50 to 100 employees. And then within each of those, we kind of have these sub-tracks that are focused on the experience background of the founder. And so a first-time entrepreneur needs something different than someone who sold the last company for $400 million. So the analogy in your head you can think about is like a university. You have your undergrad, your master's, your PhD, your executive MBA, and your different industries. Because um, we also have this another slice, which is the industries, because we have hardware companies, we have a track for medical companies that's done really well uh, for consumer companies and um, enterprise companies. Uh, and it's free. So uh, you basically, <laughs> we don't take any equity. Um, we do ask that all of our founders contribute back their time to help the other founders in the community. And that's basically their cost. So we're trying to turn them all into, uh, let's say, resources for the community. So then how, is, how does StartX exist in the world? Do you have a grant? Do you have an office? Do you have full-time employees? Or is it all just people who are volunteering their time? Yeah, so it started out as mainly volunteers. Uh, I was uh, volunteering 80 hours a week um, the first <laughs> couple of years. Uh, but now we have, you know, a couple million revenue. Um, we have an office uh, right next to Stanford on Page Mill. Um, and I think it's about 12 employees now. But a lot of our resources, I mean, we're supporting each cohort we bring in is upwards of 50 companies three times a year. And then uh, we're a lot of our resources go to the kind of general community of those 700 plus companies where we're adding 150 a year. But a lot of it is through kind of coordinating them to help each other. Um, and as far as money, like how do we make money? Uh, we do a lot of work on corporate innovation, helping corporations interact with our startups, helping our startups do enterprise sales into these corporations. And then um, 
we, uh, we've had this fund called the Stanford StartX Fund, which is an investment vehicle that we started with Stanford University and Stanford Hospital. So we're a separate nonprofit from them, but, you know, lots of intermingled stuff there. Um, and that, that fund deployed around $200 million uh, over seven years. Uh, in about, I think we made something like 700 investments um, in about 500 of the companies, a um, bunch of follow-ons. And so there was kind of a, this grant that was kind of like a management fee for that, um, for that uh, fund um, that Stanford was kind of, it was kind of like a bridge loan that they gave us to get up on our feet and uh, have our own revenue stream. And now, why? let me ask a simple question. I understand why a first-time founder would come, very obvious. I understand yeah. why somebody who's part of the community and uh, maybe very early in their life stage, uh, life of their company, even if it's their second time at BAT, let's say, uh, would come. Great to have the network, great to um, have that uh, camaraderie and, and get a little early feedback. Why would somebody who's in that PhD category, sold their company already, third or fourth time, come to the program? What do they hope to get out of it? Why are they doing it? Yeah. I'm curious. You know, so when I started this, I was, I think, like 20 years old. Um, and, you know, obviously I didn't have your background or Paul Graham's background. Um, and so we, uh, we kind of just did it like Steve Blank taught us where at Stanford, which is, you know, you put your product out there, you iterate, you listen to customer feedback. And what we ended up finding is that there are these kind of three categories of entrepreneurs. There's the very first time ones that are saying, I don't know what to do. Help me, please. Like I'm, or they act like they know everything, but they're secretly terrified. <laughs> uh, then there's the second, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, then there's a second time. There's a second time entrepreneurs who maybe they had a small exit, and they they actually do think they know everything, and they generally fail because uh, they don't ask for help or try to learn new things because they think they just know how to do it. And then there are the really experienced entrepreneurs who have succeeded multiple times, and they know that they constantly constantly need to be learning. And so it was interesting because we had these very um, hyper successful entrepreneurs who came to us and said, hey, can I join the program? We're like, why would you possibly, why would you want to join our community? Like, you're so experienced. And they said, well, the reason why I'm so successful is because I learn things, I try to learn things quickly. And when I'm a mentor to these younger entrepreneurs coming out of Stanford, I get much less high quality, unfiltered information than if I'm their peer. Uh And so, yeah, it was really interesting. And so they basically... um, uh, they were telling us they were learning as much from, you know, how to, you know, what the new development stacks are, uh, what the new business models are they're teaching in school. Um, also, the recruiting networks. You know, when you have a bunch of these uh, uh, kids out of Stanford that go, they work at, I don't know, what's the, like, the Stripe or, you know, back when I was starting, this was like Palantir and uh, Facebook. Um, that was, those are excellent resources to have to recruit from their kind of the younger people's networks. Um, cause they kind of have their executive networks, um, but digging into those younger people's networks to grow their team is also significantly helpful. Tell um, me, uh, when we get back from this quick break, how do you select companies for the program? And then how do you select companies to be invested in from the separate fund when we get back with Cameron from Startex on This Week in Startups, our Power of Accelerator series? Now more than ever, we need people with the right skills to support our communities, especially the frontline workers who provide resources and care for those most in need. 
to help LinkedIn is offering free job posts for healthcare and essential service organizations that need to quickly fill critical roles with the people who help us all. How amazing is that? If you're hiring for one of these organizations, LinkedIn's active community of over 679 million members, unbelievable how big it's gotten, can help you find the right people for the frontline fast. LinkedIn jobs screens candidates for the skills and experience you're looking for, and it puts your job post in front of qualified people who meet your requirements. So you can find the right person and you can fill critical roles quickly and properly with a talented person. Here's an example. Takeoffs.io is one of the companies we invested in, and they build an AI-enabled building materials marketplace. It's a really cool product. And last year, their CEO, Chris, was trying to hire an AI, artificial intelligence engineer lead, which is really difficult. There's a lot of competition for these, and it's a very unique skill set. Well, he used LinkedIn Jobs to find a perfect candidate after hearing about it here on This Week in Startups. And He got a candidate with a PhD in computer vision, and that employee has been with them for over a year, and he has rolled out several major projects. So here is your CTA, the old call to action. When it's time to hire and find the right person, LinkedIn is there to help. Plus, if you need to hire for healthcare or essential services, you can post your job for free. That's awesome, LinkedIn. Go to linkedin.com slash power for $50 off your first job post. That's right, linkedin.com slash power, because this is the Power of Accelerator series. Again, linkedin.com slash power terms and conditions, of course, apply because they're giving you 50 bucks. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, the founder of Stardex, Cameron Tuttleman, is with us again. He was on episode 518, if you want to see his first uh, appearance five years ago. Uh, it's getting weird to have a podcast that's 10 years old because we have to go back into the archive to remember when we last had guests on, and it was five years ago. A lot has changed in five years. Uh, the program has had over 750 attendees participants, I guess, and 700 uh, investees. How do you pick people for the program? Is it anybody at Stanford can just join? Or is there an actual process? And what percentage of people do get into the program? Yeah, so um, about 90% of our uh, acceptances are from Stanford alums. And we do have a 10% of our cohort that we allow from partner institutions like Harvard and Berkeley and UCSD and, um, and then from referrals. Of that 90%, um, it's about an 8% acceptance rate to get in from the Stanford people who apply. So 8% is a pretty high acceptance rate compared to most accelerators, which are usually around 2% or less. Uh, so you're pretty uh, accepting of folks. That's uh, almost whatever it is, one in uh, 12 Yeah, well, the nice thing in. is that we have kind of our uh, the Stanford filter and then the kind of filter to get into Stardex. Yeah. Um, and so while we do have a uh, much higher acceptance rate, um, I think our stats kind of show that uh, our companies are on average, well, let me put it this way. Our companies reach a $100 million valuation twice the rate that YC companies do. Yeah, because you're dealing with a pool of people, as you said, who already have been accepted to Stanford, which is one of the hardest tickets to get into. Um, is there a pattern with the ideas that Stanford students come up with? Is there something about those students that is unique in how they look at the world? You know, I, that you've I, seen. It depends on kind of yeah. It depends on kind of the demographic we're looking at because we have you know the medical founders whose average age is more like forty, and then the social entrepreneur social uh, products, which are you know in the mid twenties and enterprise, which is you know maybe average around thirty or thirty five. Um, and so, at least on the social, uh, you know, Instagram came out of there. 
Snapchat came out of there. They were in the same fraternity. Um, Marco Polo is one of our companies. It's doing very well right now. Um, Periscope came out of there. So for some reason, they get video. I don't know uh, what that is from, but Stanford focused a lot early on on, on like design and having design thinking be very prevalent across all of its uh, programs. And so I think that that helps. Um, besides that, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that it does in this residential education program that I think is pretty significant because we get entrepreneurs that... So, okay, so I don't know if I'm allowed to curse in this program. I don't uh, give a fuck. Okay, great. Okay, so uh, we have kind of the no asshole. So this professor at Stanford, Bob Sutton, wrote this book called The No Asshole Rule. And so we have that rule in Startex uh, where, you know, you can be very confident, but you can't really be an asshole. And I think um, there's a lot of assholes coming out of Stanford that are uh, undergrad CS students, but the entrepreneurs are generally much more humble or the successful ones. And um, I think uh, Stanford gets a bad rap sometimes on the humility front because um, – these CS kids get paid, so it's just massive amounts of money. But the entrepreneurs, I mean, if you're so arrogant as a founder, which is the difference between arrogance and confidence. Um, Explain that. Yeah, so um, I can be confident in my assumptions uh, or in my convictions, and then if someone gives me logic, I can change my assumptions and like iterate and learn quickly. If you're arrogant, you kind of have these blinders of like, what I'm saying because I'm saying it is better than this other person, even if their ideas are better. Um, and that uh, is a huge impediment. Um, um, now, that doesn't mean you can't dig into the assumptions someone else is saying. Um, but I've seen the most successful entrepreneurs are excellent at listening. Even if For they don't sure. agree, they listen very, very closely and analyze and decide if, if something makes sense. Um, and, you know, the ones who are kind of on the one end of the spectrum or the other around, you know, I listen to everything, kind of float with the wind on whatever an expert says versus I listen to nothing. One entrepreneur literally in an interview said, oh, yeah, who do I listen to? I listen to my pillow. I'm like, oh, interesting. Wow. They have not succeeded. Uh, but that's one of the things we look for. Um, I mean, as far as you asked the question about selection criteria, um, we do a lot of uh, data analysis, both uh, kind of during our interview process and retrospectively, as well as um, kind of following companies we accept and don't accept to see um, how that correlates to success. And, you know, there's a lot of things that make companies fail, and there's a few things that are highly correlated with success, and so that's kind of what we look for. And how many people are in each cohort ballpark? And then how many people do you actually do those in-person interviews with? That seems to be the choke point in a lot of these programs. Um, and there's kind of a um, I, 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 a mixed um, feeling about that process where people don't feel they were heard. I get that a lot from YC. Yeah. They do 10-minute interviews. They pay to fly people in for the YC interviews. And I think they meet with one or two sets of people for 10 minutes and then they tell them, hey, let me, we'll just stick around. We'll let you know if we want you to come back and when in the next whatever 48 hours. So they keep them in town yeah. for two days. And I, what I get from people all the time, and I don't know if this is a fair criticism or not, is, you know, they asked me two or three questions. They gave me a bunch of feedback. That took six minutes. I spoke for four minutes. I didn't feel heard. And I was always like, well, that's interesting. And then what I heard from the inside was, we want to see if people can you know, defend and explain their idea in under 10 minutes. We don't really need more than that. What are your thoughts on that? And what is your process? Yeah, so we have an online application that filters out kind of the 
uh, easy things, um, like have they figured out equity split and stuff like that. Um, and then we have three in-person interviews. One is around um, kind of the idea and market and kind of to see how they think. Second is a culture interview to filter for a bunch of things. And then the third is a technical interview, uh, especially on the science side. This is super important. Honestly, we get a bunch of YC biotech companies that like they just, I mean, I'll be blunt. They just are terrible at the science. They don't know what they're doing. Um, and so that's super important. All of our interviews are, are 10 minutes. So uh, we've also found that we're able to find, uh, we're able to figure out what we need to in a very short amount of time. We do not let our judges or uh, give feedback during the admissions process or during the interviews. It's all about asking them questions. And the interviews are a combination of behavioral and data collection. Um, what are you looking for so, on that behavioral side? I'm curious. Do you have a best dynamics. practice there? It's team dynamics. I mean, oh. it's, um, you know, one of the, I think Noam Wasserman did this study a long time ago from Harvard around the number one or the main reason startups fail and interpersonal conflict is a very high one. And I'll tell you, I've been kind of like the internal startup therapist for the community. Um, and uh, I think the stats, something like 50% of founders are not with the teams after two years. Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's a really important thing on the behavioral front. Um, what gets asked in that 10-minute interview? What are common questions that people can expect? Yeah, well, uh, maybe you should ask Larry and Sergey if they, uh, um, what the interview questions at Google are. Yeah. See what they respond. So, you know, we can't give that away. Otherwise, oh, you don't, be, I see, because you, know. you want to have them fresh there, right. But are they <laughs> yeah, questions we, we about their up. business or questions just generally about life and, and startups? Uh, we do both. And yeah. so, for instance, one that's easy to talk about, and I think this is obvious, is just understanding their background and if they've done anything particularly where they pushed outside their comfort zone. Got it. Um, so, Why is that important? Well, it's important because when you're an entrepreneur, you have to do things that are uncomfortable or else someone would have already solved this problem. Hmm. You know, large corporations, they generally hire people that want a more stable life, want to do things not so comfortable. I mean, I used to sit outside the person at Stanford's uh, office and just bug them until they had a meeting with me because they wouldn't take a meeting. And these GSB volunteers on my team were like, what are you doing? Like, don't do that. We're going to get in trouble. I'm like, no, like, this is what we have to do. And so that sort of ability to um, hustle and do uh, socially uncomfortable things to move past barriers is super important. Yeah, I found that in my career is yeah, super important. If you if you're not willing to step outside your comfort zone and learn new skills and confront, you know, difficult situations, you're never going to make it uh, as an entrepreneur. You talked a lot about co-founder dynamics. What makes for a good co-founder pairing and what have you seen in terms of the number of co-founders? Is there a magic number? Is um, two better than mm. one? I know that you know, YC says you have to have multiple co-founders, not one. No solo co-founders, I believe, was their rule. I'm not sure if that still stands. Uh, yeah, that seems a little short-sighted. Um, you don't have to have two. Um, there have been plenty of successful companies with one co-founder. Now, generally, even if there are two, um, a lot of times there is like a main one and then a secondary one. Hmm. Um, the... Um, 
Although I think two sometimes can prevent against having blinders. So if you're a single co-founder, you need to be extra good at listening and taking feedback and kind of hearing because you don't have someone that's at the same uh, status level as you in the company that can kind of be a hmm. uh, check against you. And so that's the main thing to look for in a single founder. Um, if you have over four or five co-founders, then that just that generally doesn't work in unless it's a very exceptional case. Like Palantir had a bunch of founders. So one is okay. Two or three, great. You have some sounding boards, but probably four or five is not the right number. Uh, when we get back from this break, I want to know about how do you make that decision to invest or not to invest in the companies coming out of Stardex when we get back on This Week in Startups. I want to take a moment and tell you about the importance of insurance for your startup. And I am an expert at this because I've been doing it for 30 years. I had a magazine, I had a search engine, I had a blogging company. I have been sent legal letters every year. Anybody who's successful in business is going to need insurance because they're going to have things come up. Let me just go through the top four types of insurance with you. Cyber insurance. Imagine you get hacked, your entire customer role, maybe their credit cards if you didn't hash them properly. Uh, maybe it's an inside job and really important stuff gets leaked. You need to have cyber insurance to cover you. There's DNO insurance. That's directors and uh, officers. That's like your top employees, officers. And if you do something stupid, you're going to get sued and you want to make sure that your officers, the top employees of the company, and your directors, people who are on the board, have insurance and they're covered. In fact, people, you can't get great um, directors and you can't get great officers for your company if you don't have this. E and O insurance stands for errors and omissions. Really important to have, especially in editorial and other um, uh, services. And any big customer you have using your product is going to want you to have E and O if you're going to close a deal with them. And then finally, this EPL, Employment Practices Liability, that covers harassment and wrongful termination. And you see these things come up all the time. And listen, you might be the greatest boss in the world. But if somebody else feels like they've been wrong, they're going to sue you. And there's plenty of attorneys out there who want to sue you, especially if you're a venture-backed company. And you might have somebody in your organization. It may not be you. It might be somebody else in your organization does something really stupid and harasses somebody, and then you're on the hook for it. So you want to get that EPL. You want to get that E&O. You want to get the D&O. And you want to get that cyber insurance. And in brokers technology, it's going to get it for you, and it's going to save you time and money. Prices are up to 20% lower, and you're going to get better coverage. You go sign up and get a quote, and you purchase within just, wait for it, 10 minutes. So what's your excuse now? Here's the thing. You don't have to call a traditional broker insurance company and deal with large, slow incumbents and sign up taking days, if not weeks, and a process that's just simply not transparent with opaque pricing. They make it quick, they make it easy, and they make it better to instantly buy custom-built insurance for startups. Go to imbroker.com slash twist imbroker.com slash twist that's em broker b-r-o-k-e-r dot com slash twist and get an extra 10 percent off by using the offer code angel 10 all right cameron Tidelman is back with us he is the founder chairman head of emissions at start x and uh he started it when he was 20 years old at stanford he is a force of nature uh, i was so impressed when i met you back when when you invited me to come meet the company so impressed with the companies obviously how do VCs and investors look at your program? Um, are they uh, really tightly in touch with you, trying to get like the inside information on which ones you personally think are strong, or are they trying to get an edge on each other, or are they do they sit back and wait now for the companies to be you know get past the angel stage? I'm curious. Yeah, so we try to not we try to be less of a gating function and more of a training 
function, if that makes sense. So we train our entrepreneurs on how to fundraise, mm-hmm. and then we give them tools to fundraise. Um, but we don't like force them all to do the demo day, for instance. Um, I generally like to build products that are valuable because people opt into them because they're valuable, not because you're kind of holding their feet to the fire and telling them they'll be blacklisted from the community if they don't do something. I think that's just absolutely not sustainable. I'm not so they can opt in and out of the, of the demo day. Yeah, exactly. And our demo day is actually for anyone in the community. So we'll have companies raise $10 million on there or $20 million Series Bs. How many or, people you know, uh, present at the demo day then if anybody from the community can do it? Uh, each one, we do it twice a year and it's, uh, usually around 40 to 50 companies. How many minutes do they get on stage? How many investors show up? Yeah. So we actually, for the last three years, I believe have done fully virtual demo days. Wow. Um, and we, we had, you know, as a small nonprofit at StartX, running these demo days, as you know, is like this huge production and we had, you know, uh, like Evan Spiegel, uh, the founder and CEO of Snapchat, was our head of marketing when he was a student. And we saw kind of the inner workings of Snapchat. We had Periscope. We had Marco Polo. We had all of these like video tools that helped with engagement. Hmm. And so we basically had some insights on how to create a lot of good engagement through video. And so what we did is we basically broke down what the demo day provided and then designed this online experience. And to be honest, Jason, this it was, I mean, let me put it this way. My, I love amazing user experiences and having a uh, volunteer staff run a demo day for extremely high profile investors, consistently high quality in person every time is, it's super hard. Yeah. And so to control the Production is hard. Yeah, production is hard. That's why I have Sir Charles and Master Nick here. (laughs) I have two full-time AV people because it's fucking hard to get it right. Yeah, it's hard, exactly. And like, the thing is, is when I have a, you know, an under, a sophomore uh, running our AV, um, (laughs) (laughs) things happen. And and people gave us a little bit of a pass because we're affiliated with the university. But ultimately, we did this online version and just kind of redesigned the whole experience. And on average, our company's got about eight times the number of qualified investor follow-up meetings than in person. So. We just moved to 100% what is the, online. What is the uh, secret to doing great video in, in brief? And how many minutes do the people have? Oh, they have three minutes, which is all Same you as need. us. Perfect. It's all yeah. you need. Yeah, I think everyone kind of converges to that because the purpose of the demo day isn't to fundraise. It's to get the meet, first meetings. Right. And, or second meetings with those, those investors. I tell people um, it's the trailer of your startup. And then people are like, you left this out of the trailer. I'm like, yes, the trailer for Star Wars doesn't tell you <laughs> that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker, spoiler alert, his dad. Yeah, exactly. And he has exactly. a sister. Like, you find that out in the movie, not the trailer. Yeah, trailer gets you to some, see the movie. Yeah. yeah, right. I think some people need to... Um, it's it's a sales funnel. I mean, fundraising, recruiting, sales, it's all kind of the same. Yeah. And you don't want to give everyone everything away at, fr- at the beginning. You want to hook people so they spend more time with you. Um, and very importantly, you want to filter out people. And so for us, we're not... Um, um, we more, uh, so, and we don't force every company to, to do demo day. We help them fundraise off cycle as well. Hmm. And so your answer, your question around, uh, do investors, uh, I used to I'll put it this way. I used to get invited to a lot of investor, uh, socials and stuff until I made it clear. I wasn't giving anyone preferential access. Oh, so and the then, opposite uh, the of YC, <laughs> the opposite of the insider YC approach. Yeah. I think our, our, like the difference with us and YC is that we, well, I'll say, I won't comment on YC, but I'll say that, uh, actually I'll comment on YC. Our, um, our approach, I believe, is much more meritocratic. Um, we're not trying to play power games. 
and uh, squeeze investors. Right. We're trying to train our entrepreneurs on how to most effectively have skills to fundraise, to hold their own in negotiations, to run an investor funnel um, so that they don't need us to fundraise. They don't yeah. need to go to our, our demo day is just an amplification of their I efforts. Think that's the thing that YC, I think, overplayed their hand a bit. And I think, listen, I love Paul Graham, what he's done. I, I think it's yeah, just tremendous. The thing is, he always had like a little bit of an anti-investor, like investors are bad. They need to be kind of neutered or controlled. And it it permeated into the demo day, which is this high pressure sales tactic, which then turned off the investment community, which was like, you know what? I'm not going to go to that. And then they let insiders come and be mentors early. And the top this is what people don't know is that all the aces and kings are taken out of the deck and given to their insider friends and to the partners. And then when you're going and if you're the you know, you're the schmuck at the table, if you go to demo day, because you're watching from according to what I've been told, you know, the the 90 percent, the bottom 90 percent and the real experts at investing have picked off the top 10 percent. So it's literally like right. going to a casino and like your comp- competition in the poker game have all the aces and kings. You're going to have a hard time yeah. winning. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's worked well for them for what they're trying to accomplish, which is, uh, you know, being a venture fund and getting a couple winners in there. Yeah. Um, um, and it's definitely, definitely very strong in game dynamics. And they're, I mean, they're brilliant product designers for what they're trying to accomplish. What is the game us, dynamic of Demo Day? What, what is that game dynamic that they created? I, I have some Yeah, so, and too. we, you know, all of us do that. It's this scarcity around, um, you know, I mean, <laughs> investing in startups is, I'm trying to turn it into a science. We have mm-hmm. this whole investor training thing that we're building out and all these analytics and everything. But like, to date, it's been more of a more of a intuition based and art versus data backed because mm. there's for some such little data, and so when things are uncertain, people tend to spend their time on decisions if they're not quick decision makers. Mm. And so a lot of the game dynamics around fundraising have to do with getting decisions faster so founders don't waste their time because mm. they have to build a company. They're, they're yeah, you're busy, right? You want to get know? the fundraising done. Right, right. And so, so like any individual founder can simulate what happens in a demo day by themselves if they actually know how to do it. How? Um, would you say how? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's pretty simple. It's about like, um, well, first of all, you need to have a uh, coherent story that resonates. Um, I think the, some people don't get the first step right, which is have a strategy that actually makes sense in a market that's actually growing with yeah. a real problem, you know, all the basics. So let's and assume you have a problem statement and a product and a team that check the boxes. Let's talk about that process. What is the best practice to run your own personal demo day as opposed to try and do the high pitch, high pressure sale at a demo day where there's 600 dentists and angels in a room where you're pushing them to make a quick decision? What's the way yeah. for me to do that as an, a founder when I have a good product, good team, good customers? Yeah, so first of all, it's to understand what your assumptions are of your business. And then you're running a sales funnel. And your funnel is, how do I, in the shortest amount of time, figure out what investors believe in my assumptions? And then have conversations with them to see uh, how deeply they believe in my assumptions. Mm. And a bunch of things like, can they actually invest? I mean, there's a lot of investors out there that'll waste founders' time and they actually can't even invest. Or do they have competitive investments? Or... Um, you know, we give a, we give like a, a whole series of, of talks and, and workshops on this. Um, but the idea is to run it like a sales funnel and you have your low quality leads, which you want to filter down to your higher quality leads that are more relevant and believe in your assumptions. 
And then for those people, you know, it just keeps on kind of going down until you have a So you sheet. make this lead list and then you're talking about these assumptions. Give me an example for a company like, say, Snapchat, just to pick one random company. What would be the key? Uh, you, you have this list of 200 potential investors. You narrow it down to people who are actually actively investing in business to consumer. Now you're saying, hey, what are the assumptions they agree with? How do you define yeah. those assumptions in a case like, let's say, Snapchat early days? Yeah, so they're broken down into pr- some uh, very simple categories. It's problem. Is there a significant problem? Is there a big enough market where you can make money if you solve this problem? Is there some shift in consumer behavior or the market that gives you an opening to actually attack this problem? Can your team actually ex- actually execute on it? Um, and even if it's a big market, do you have a model to actually capture some of that value? And so for Snapchat, an example of this is there's room for another video social app. Hmm. And there's a lot of investors that just didn't believe that. I mean, literally, we had investors when we saw Bourbon, what was it, the pre-Instagram. Yeah, um, there was location. It was like a Gowalla or Foursquare. Yeah, but also they were doing, when they switched to photos, I remember one of the VCs being like, there's no more room for anything in photos. Facebook has won (laughs) that. And I was like, yeah, I'm not not sure about that. But um, That would be an example of not agreeing with the fundamental assumption of the business. Correct. Correct. The other thing is that people want, people are, uh, there's a different behavior that, or, or there's a, there's a room for some media to be created that disappears. Explain that. Unpack so it. Snapchat, one of the core innovations there was that uh, they, there was like a Polaroid. Like, mm. it dis- like they took it and they threw it away. You know, the, the, the right. video disappeared. And I remember all these investors saying, why would anyone want, why, they, they want to keep the content. Like, why would you ever want the video to disappear? And they didn't get that that just means that a different form of content would be created. Right. The ephemeral um, nature of it led more people to engage in a type of photography that maybe was a little more loosey-goosey. Right. A little exactly. more candid. Yep, yep. And that, and that also that this would go beyond... Well, okay, here's an assumption that actually never ended up panning out, which was that it would go beyond like the 13 to 21-year-old demographic. But I think what people didn't understand is that demographic is, is extremely valuable. I mean, look at how much money they're making now. And right. They kind of own it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, all right, when we come back, I'm going to tease for the third time how do you make your investment decisions. You gave me too many windows into great, great tactical stuff, and I never got to how the fund, uh, the Stardex fund, uh, actually makes its investment decisions. We'll get to that in segment four when we get back. I got so much going on here. Obviously, the podcast is doing great. The Launch Accelerator is amazing. We've got over 100 graduates now in my fund, a ton of events. We just did Angel University for 250 people, Foundry University we've done 15 or 20 times. So many projects, and my team members are so in the weeds getting so much done. How do we surface and control and organize all this information, all the different projects we're doing? Well, we use something called Notion, N-O-T-I-O-N, Notion. And it is amazing. It's one tool that does many jobs. You can organize your notes, kind of like a wiki or uh, your docs, kind of like a word processor, as well as projects and workflows in one spot. And it, it lets you use all kinds of different free-flowing objects. So you can have a list, you can have a table, you can have comments, you can have bullet lists. So what we did was we started a book club in the This Week in Startup Slack. You can join that, thisweekinstartups.com slash Slack. And somebody who was in the Slack said, here's my notes on the first book we're doing. We're doing Robert Iger's book, The Ride of a Lifetime. So we did the first uh, book club. And like 60, 70, 80 people showed up on the Zoom in Slack. And those are great for talking and chatting. 
but they both suck for taking notes. One of the members of the community made an outline of the book. And then two of my team members, Laura and Tracy and Presh, three of my team members, were contributing all of their thoughts on the book and taking what people were talking about and making an outline of notes of everything we learned from the book. And we did that beautifully. And you can see it here on the screen in Notion. So we had this incredible flourishing conversation that would have went into the ether, the ether, but it got captured on Notion for all time. Then we took that experience that 60, 70 of us were having and we shared it with 10,000 people. I'm not kidding. And now all those people are going to read Robert Iger's book. And we got to get him on the podcast, by the way. All of this was done with Notion. And it works so well for startups. It is a complete no-brainer. It's your wiki. It's your managing projects, creating documents, and taking notes all in the same place. So here is your call to action. Get started with Notion. And they're going to give you 50% off their team plan for your first year by going to Notion.com slash twist. Please I know you don't need to save money in a lot of cases, but use that URL so that they know you came from the pod. Notion, N-O-T-I-O-N dot com slash twist. I am addicted to this product. It is like one of the great products of all time. And I know this is an ad read. I know they're partners with the program. We were using this long before they decided to sponsor the podcast. It's kind of got that magical feeling like Uber or Wikipedia or Slack or Zoom had when you first use it. You get that tingle. You get that Notion tingle. Notion.com slash twist. 50% 50% off their team plan for your first year. It's a great offer. It's a great product. It's not, it's not a great product. It's a world-changing product. I, I can say that. It's a game-changing product. All right, let's get back to this amazing episode. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. Our guest today, Cameron Titleman. He is C... Are you C-J-T-M-A-N on Twitter? Yes. Okay, C-J-T-M-A-N on the Twitter. He started Stardex.com when he was 20 effing years old. I was starting uh, my first new magazine zine just after that time so my god so young so early to this um but you did it as a non-profit so you left probably a hundred million on the table personally yeah well our companies are worth i think uh 30 35 billion now so 35 billion you would have had about five percent of it watered down to two and a half two and a half 30 billion it's uh, 750 yeah. million 750 been, million engaged you get 20 percent of that <laughs> Uh, you talk about 150, you split it with five like, partners, um, you get 30 million each. Yeah. Um, but I was also 20, so I had to find some hack to get into it. But then you, you did know? this fund, this $200 yes. million dollar fund. You deployed that 30 million a year or so, I guess, on average. Yeah, around. I mean, it ramped up. As you um, It was kind of like an evergreen fund, uh, more or less. I mean, we're working on two uh, other funds now that are more aligned with our future goals around. Um, sourcing and our growth stage program that we're we've been working on uh but the the fund worked really well for the first uh you know for around seven years we had it um but really importantly for us is because our the core of what we do is help our founders share problems that they're scared or they have a really hard time sharing with even like their co-founders or their investors or their board members why why do they have that fear uh because um, that makes well, no sense. Isn't your co-founder who you're supposed it does, to go to? It makes to? complete sense, Jason. Like I think it makes complete sense. Like when you were founding your magazine, when you had your board members, you just tell them every all the shit that was going on. No, like, I don't want to get problems. fired. I want them to be yeah, there you go, right? Me. But you still and so you know, I did this research when I started Startex. I don't know if I ever told you about it. Um, where I looked at all the most successful Stanford alumni founders, and I spoke to a lot of them. So this is like the Reed Hoffmans, the Peter Thiel's, the Larry and Sergey's, the Jerry Yangs. Um, 
and try to figure out why were they so successful and why are Stanford companies in aggregate the sixth largest country as far as GDP? So they're tied for Germany with Germany as far as GDP creation. And what I found is that they had all created, the hyper-successful ones, had created these very specifically designed peer support groups where they could be very honest and transparent about all the stuff that they were facing and then get very quick help and very quick access to high-quality resources. Um, and so... Like, you can't, like, I think part of it is once you get confident as an entrepreneur, you're much more comfortable sharing these problems with your board members mm. or your, eh, I wouldn't say board members, uh, but with your co-founders and even employees. But as a young, new entrepreneur, it's super challenging because you're just scared. You don't, you want everyone to think you know what to do. Mm. Um, and so, for instance, when I was starting StartX, I actually joined those groups in our program because huh. I also had no idea what I was doing. I was like... Hmm, how do you set up QuickBooks? I don't know, guys. Like, yeah. how do I how do I hire? How do I recruit? And I had built two companies before, but they were they were much smaller. Um, and so that safe environment is super helpful. And so because of that, our fund was structured so that we weren't making any discretionary decisions on our founders once they got into the program. Got it. And so what we would do is, like a lot of other Stanford funds, we would just piggyback on professional investors who invested over 500000 in our companies, and we would just do 10% of the rounds. Mm. And we had this really weird thing that I had to convince Stanford of, and eventually they got over it, which was uh, it wasn't required. And so it was up for the founders to decide whether or not to take our money. Huh. And the thing is, is uh, we talked about those hyper-successful entrepreneurs, the really experienced ones. When they join our community, they become a huge asset to everyone because they're volunteering their time to help everyone else out with their network, with their expertise. And there's no way in how they were going to give us 7% of their company or even, even allow us to have a right to invest in their companies. And so I always thought of Startups as like a freemium model. where We brought them in, we prove our value, and then it ended up turning out that 90, I think it's like 96% of the rounds that were raised, we got in. And the most successful entrepreneurs had the most leverage to get us in the rounds. The least successful or the ones that weren't doing as well um, got us in. And then some of the middle ones where they just had to have a huge amount of dilution uh, had a little bit harder time. And so I get on a call with XYZ investor. You know, we've co-invested with everyone in the Valley at this point, a bunch with you as well. Yeah. And basically, you know, have the conversation of, you know, okay, here's, here's a fun story. This one investor told, like, cut us out of a deal and said, you know, I'm a seed investor and, um, you know, I have to have leverage against Series A investors in order to, for them to let me in. And so that's just how the game is played. And so I was like, all right, great. Cut off the switch, and they didn't get any more deal flow from us. I did the um, same exact thing. It's so weird that yeah. these, like, right? and it's always these, like, <laughs> you know, mid-market, non-successful investors who think they have to tell you, like, oh, yeah, you have to suffer like I suffer. It's like, uh, no, I don't. And I'm the freaking point guard here. Don't you understand that I'm passing you the ball? If you're going to be a ball hog and not pass it back, I don't have to give you the ball in the first place. We're the originator of the deals. Yeah, and it's it's just crazy that people are very short-term think. Well, I would say a lot of uh, the successful people in the valley are very long-term thinkers. You have to be, and they yeah, and they think of repeated games and that you know we're all in this together. We're all you know a lot of us at least we're here because we love innovation. We love helping the brilliant people that are smarter than us solve hard problems and it's a communal thing to kind of help these companies and mm. you know sometimes people get a little greedy it is so weird the short-term thinking because you just think about the cost of missing a great deal is so high 
so yep. high. If you don't get into that Snapchat because you were sharp elbowed before, like that, whoever that seed fund was who told you you gotta like, you know, take it, uh, and it's just the way it is, and tried to bully you. It's like, well, what if you don't send him the next Snapchat, and he's not even yeah. thinking that way? I don't know. It's so weird. It is so weird. And also at these early rounds, there's so much room on the cap table in the seed rounds. Yeah. To do this. So um, let me ask you when, and this is just kind of a silly question that we all get, but you do get a lot of signaling when you start getting to hundreds of investments or relationships that people who have under hundreds and you're signaling now. What does your signaling tell you about which founders make it to the other side? You mentioned one that I thought was brilliant that I hadn't heard before, which is the creation of peer groups. That's a very unique uh, uh, pullout that the successful founders create peer groups or a part of peer groups. What an interesting yes. dig insight. What other insights do you have in terms of what makes people successful or what successful people do? Because those are two different things. Uh, okay, so... Um what makes people successful? What successful people do? So uh, here's something I tell all the founders at orientation, which is this really funny insight that just came out of our data. And I think it translates to everyone. So the, the strongest correlation for us on teams that fail are teams that participate in everything we do. Hmm. And wait, so wait. we run around 300 events every program. If they do very all of them, they're going to fail. Yeah, if they do, if they try to, it's kind of like the the fear of, I, I don't know if this translates necessarily, but the fear of missing out. It's uh -huh. like, oh, here are these things, I have to do this now, versus being hyper laser focused. And I think people, you know, this isn't brain, like, I think you understand this. Um, you need to be laser focused on the problem in front of you yeah. and then make sure that that correlates to your long-term success. If you're just trying to do all kinds of things, like, I mean, I have a new startup that I'm working on now. And just today I was on a call with all my employees where they're like, hey, here are these five things that we need to do all of them. They're amazing. I'm like, hey, guys, number one issue with, uh, with startups is if you're unfocused, you fail. And you got to nail one opportunity first before you move on to the next. So uh, that's, that's something that's, that's very strongly correlated. I think also... Um, <sighs> Well, I mean, that's a actually that's the biggest one. Um, you know what I file that under? I file it under ruthlessness, time management. If you look at like Elon, or mm. you look at um, you know David Sachs or Peter Thiel or Max or just any of that like PayPal mafia, Stanford mafia, they did seem to have a ruthlessness about their focus. And if you're coming to every single event, you probably haven't figured out what in is in fact essential for you. And that essentialism mm -hmm. and that ruthlessness uh, and focus is so critical. Um, it's so easy to get distracted, especially when you're part of a community. There's so much going on. You could you could just be bouncing all over the place. You got to stay focused. I think um, I think part of that just to just to jump on that is that it, it, on top of time management, it's 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 prioritization. And I think that's mm -hmm. kind of what you were saying. Which it's not just about how you schedule your week; it's what you do in that week that's extraordinarily important, mm -hmm. and that you're really laser focused on the most important things in your company. Not like you know setting up all your legal docs so they're perfect. Or I mean, this is a lot of the reason why big uh, corporate people when they join they come down and do startups. Uh, fail because they just move really slow. Um, and that's kind of the second thing that I noticed as very, very highly correlated with success, which is just speed, hmm. just pure, like ruthless speed. And that, I mean, those things are probably correlated. 
Yeah, it, the ability to iterate and test quickly means you're just going to get more information and more feedback on how to make your product better. And if you're too precious about getting that feedback and you're moving too slow, which is what corporations do, they're trained to have process. Right. It does seem like you can put too much process on a problem. Uh, and I mean, I think that's why the lean startup resonates so so much with people when you're when you do that lean startup methodology you're saying hey what's the least amount of work i can do to get an answer to a question does lean startup play a lot into what you do i know steve blank was the co-founder of that you know um i i t- i was one of steve blank's students before the lean startup was a was okay. created and he had this model around customer development explain which it. i like much more yeah explain um it. it's lean startup's kind of an iteration customer development is just a um I mean the, the the basic version, which is it's kind of like lean startup, is you just basically you, you have to go and and dig into your customers' assumptions and really understand even better than they do what their issues are. Hmm. And uh, lean startup is a little bit different. It's where you're kind of throwing things against the wall and seeing how people resonate, and both right. are good signals. But the problem is is that if you don't have a very deep understanding of where your customers are now. Um, you may get really weird signals that are not necessarily correct when you're seeing how they react to things. Mm. Um, Because they may be, like, understanding the why behind why they react to a product a certain way Mm. is much more important than seeing kind of how they react. Because then you can do very innovative things and kind of opens up the the solution set of how you can solve their problems. Um, And so I think this is where you hear, like, Keith Raboy, you know, and, like, that kind of crowd, like, you know, shitting all over the lean startup because it's not very long-term thinking focused. Mm. And um, there's this mis, uh, I think this um, misunderstanding or, or, or buying on like a, a, this like binary thought process where it's like, okay, either I'm thinking long-term strategy or I'm thinking lean startup. And, and I don't think that's accurate. Mm. It's, it's about having some core assumptions about the world and about human behavior and what needs there are, and then trying things to see what the best solution is to that problem that right. you have a strong conviction around. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Tell me about your portfolio. What are the companies that have been the most successful coming out of Stardex? Yeah. So we have uh, our our fund has 700 investments and in like 500 companies roughly. And, uh, you know, that sort of size of a fund, you think you need a bunch of winners. But actually, we have one company that's going to return the whole fund, which is just Amazing. So I think it's going to be a, a really phenomenal. Which one yeah, is that? And so it's called, uh, it's called Kodiak. Um, mm. So about 40%, 30 to 40% of our companies are biotech and medical devices. Uh, 20% are hardware and then 30% enterprise, 20% consumer, like consumer software, like a Snapchat. Yeah. And so Kodiak is a eye drug that prevents you from going blind from uh, macular degeneration. And the current treatment for that is a needle that goes in your eye ah. and like in an in in a in a inpatient like at the doctor Ooh. and they have a way to deliver the drug with a drop. Yeah. It's just like obviously that's gonna be better. Yeah, um, I'm and go there with are a couple that. billion. I'm gonna go with that. How you know, did the um, right? how did the blood testing Theranos thing work out? How did that one work out for Unfortunately, you know, unfortunately they were about ten years they started ten years before we did and so uh, you missed it. You missed it. I know. I heard I heard they're doing great. But we have this other company that's doing really well also called Genapsis, which is kind of like an Illumina. Uh, so Illumina has these giant genetic sequencers that are tens of thousands of dollars, and they've created a desktop version. 
And they're actually distributing that version all around the world so that doctors and laboratories can do COVID testing like right there. Wow. Um, and so that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. They just raised another couple hundred million. Um, so that's on that side. On the, um, we have some companies on the um, enterprise side that have done very well. Um, there's Instart Logic. You had Branch, um, I think, and Patreon. Yeah, Branch. Yep, Branch. Life360, people don't know about that. That yep. was like this little secret one. Yeah, they they went public on the Australian stock exchange. Um, which is really which is, easier than the US one. They'll <laughs> yeah. take a 10, 20, 30 million revenue company. I think where they're the first, one of the first uh, US software companies to go public on there. But yeah, they raise a bunch of money there. They're like this family social, private social network. Marco Polo right now on the social side is just killing it. Like I saw, I'm a huge fan of Parks and Rec. Yeah. And I just saw Amy Poehler from Parks and Rec, like, talking to Seth Meyers and repping Marco Polo. I think they're, I've been screenshotting their place in the app store. They're like above Spotify. They're above Tinder. Wow. Um, that's always fun. What do people um, use Marco Polo for? What is the, what is the use case there? Yeah. So Marco Polo is interesting. So I love talking to my parents, but I'm really busy. And so they'll FaceTime me and I won't have time. So Marco Polo is kind of like FaceTime, except you're just sending video messages back and forth. Got it. And you can, Async and you know, Sometimes parents talk a little slow, so I can 2x speed them. Um, I don't really tell Ooh, them that. Don't tell mom. Yeah. yeah Cameron, you know, I'm not going to get that. My mom's Italian, so I may have to Cameron, fight for some mom. lasagna. What are you now. doing? Don't be stupid. You take it. I was listening to this week in the startup. You got to take it a carry. Cameron. She, she, she's not from the old country, I take it. <laughs> uh, no, no. My, well, she, her, her parents are, so I get that from She them. makes the good no, gravy? She's, she got the good she's a New Yorker, though. Oh, she's in New York. No, yeah. she's a. It's a spaghetti and uh, spaghetti sauce and lasagna. And What's her signature? The What's the signature dish? What's the signature dish? Oh, a lasagna. Lasagna, so really? Good. Oh, she puts Sicilian the meat in it? lasagna. She got the rigot in there. Yes, absolutely. Oh God, I love it with the. I get this lasagna sometimes. They don't have the good rigotta in it, and it's just like, what am I doing yeah, here? It's phenomenal. It's like a waste of time. All right, listen, Cameron. I could talk to you all day long. Um, continued success, and uh, if you're a non-Stanford company or a non-Ivy League, I guess you can't apply. Is that right? Uh, you can apply if you get a referral from one of our alums. Perfect. Great. And it must be mind-blowing to not be part of the Stanford group and get in, huh? Like that is a I quick- mean, it's hugely valuable. Like honestly, we get a lot of the best teams from like Harvard, like other um, huh. communities just because they kind of want to get access to that community. And also, their communities are phenomenal, and yeah. so it adds a huge amount to us. Yeah, fantastic. All right, uh, continued success, and everybody check out startx.com, and we'll see you next time on This Week in Startups, our Power of Accelerator series. We're going to interview the top 10 accelerators and get more valuable information for you, our founders and startups. Bye-bye. 